1: The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. Welcome to the TNF Hotline on the Knappsock Files. Your calls, your voice, your thoughts, and your host, Ken Knappsock. On the air in beautiful Burbank, California, this is the TNF Hotline, the Knapsack Files Hotline, the fourth official episode. We have been on the air uh, on Patreon first. This is the second episode open to you guys in the, quote, general public. The phone calls are from my Patreon supporters. They call into a Google Voice message box. Their questions, my answers. want to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash files. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Sign up, give it a go, let them know. I sent you. We are here in February. That's right. It's the end of February. We're counting down the last days of February 2018, which means the year is almost over. That's right. It's all done. Wrap it up. Let's head home. Hmm. Can't believe time is flying this fast. So let's not waste any more time. Let's go to the phones. I got Matthew calling in from Canada.
0: Hi, it's uh, Matthew from Sackville, New Brunswick, Canada. Uh, and I had a question for you. Normally the NAPSOV files is, has very serious and in-depth questions. And sometimes the topics are a little uh, topical. And that mine falls into the latter. Um, Have you ever been summoned for a jury? I just got a letter saying that I have to appear um, for jury duty, and I'm wondering if you've ever done it or if you've had friends who've done it or if you've got any funny stories about it. Um, Yeah, just a random subject for the day.
1: Thanks. On jury duty, our civic duty, our civic responsibility, our civic pleasure. Now, Matt's calling in from Canada, and I have to wonder, I don't mean to perpetuate stereotypes, but I have to wonder if up there in Canada, jury duty is treated... A little different. If they treat you a little different, if you get the notice in the mail and you're like, "Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to go this year," and they're like, "That's all right. Let us know when you want to go," because down here in the states, it is treated like a little bit of a war. It's a war over your free time. It's a war against your life. It's a it's a shot across the bow of your of your uh, convenience. You have to uh, head out to the court. You have to go through the selection process. Maybe you get selected. Then you're on a jury, and then you uh, have to miss work. And then you, of course, uh, you know, only get maybe paid $12 a day, and your work should cover some of that and miss time, but maybe they don't, and and your bosses are upset, and you're taken out of work, and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? I actually have an antiquated view of jury duty, Matthew. I have been, uh, you know, summoned many times, and um, it is difficult. I, you know, there's some difficulty to it here in LA County. Depending on the court you get, you might. Uh, if you get Chatsworth courthouse out here in the San Fernando Valley, you're good. It's it's pretty painless, smaller courthouse. But if you get like Hill Street, which is downtown, uh, that is that is a trip. That is a journey. That is that is uh, a potential problem. But. I, I got to tell you, again, like I said, I have an antiquated view. I have never been on an actual jury. I got very close a couple times, and I kind of enjoyed it. I kind of enjoyed the process. I don't think our justice system is perfect. No, absolutely, I don't think it is. But it's a pretty darn good system, and a jury by your peers in concept is a good thing. So when I'm when I'm called, when I'm summoned, I go. I don't try to throw the thing. I, I'll maybe delay it a little bit. Uh, you know, there are inconvenient times. I get that. But, hey. I don't anticipate being in, 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 in the need of a jury of my peers. I don't think anyone does, but, you know, if if it's a turnaround, if I'm in that position, I want people to come on out to see what's going on, to hear my case and make a decision about my future. That is kind of scary when you put it down on paper like that. Oh, boy. But, no, I have – I go. I don't, I don't understand uh, some of the people who can just so – Willy nilly toss the jury summons aside, and God bless you if you do. I'm not casting aspersions or stones. I just, I see people do that. I'm like, that. that's not for me. That's not my path. I can't do it. Th- I just can't do it that way. Um, I go. And in fact, one of the times I went, I was over uh, at the Van Nuys Courthouse. I, I don't want to make this a completely LA County based show, but the Van Nuys Courthouse it was a few years ago. And I went in, and it was a prostitution case. And this is mid-2000s. And at the time, I had a friend who was a sergeant, uh, LAPD Devonshire Division, and he was working on a writing project, and I was helping him, and we are going to shoot some stuff. And he had um, brought in a couple other friends of his who were vice uh, detectives. Uh, You might know them as, but just uh, um, working undercover, working the prostitution rings over in Van Nuys. So... I say that to say this. I knew them. I was working with them on this little writing project. They were, uh, you know, uh, helping us on some stuff. So here I am in the jury room, and everyone and their mother and grandfather is trying to get out of the jury. They get up to that little jury box, any reason you can't serve, yep, I don't, like, uh, I don't like being here, I don't like you judge, I don't like the person on trial, I don't like the person next to me, get me out of here. And years, years past, that would work. You know, they would, uh, more people were coming in, but more people are just so used to just tossing aside the jury summons, they don't have a lot of people to choose from sometimes. And they're tired of the excuses. The judges heard them all. You know, it's like a plot of a, of a, of a 30 Rock episode. You know, what are you going to say? The weirdest things, uh, the most outlandish things you're going to say. So, but here I am, I sit down, and they, they, they ask me, um, is there any reason you think you can't serve on this jury? And I said, no, I, I don't think there is, though I should de- disclose something. Uh, at the time, I was a security director. I'm like, I work hand-in-hand with law enforcement daily, literally daily, have have LAPD officers at the time working for me. I was working alongside uh, active officers who were stationed to uh, my office. Um. So, I, but I'm still fine. I still think I, I, that's not going to get in my way. I've seen bad cops. I've seen good cops. I've seen great cops. I've seen horrible cops. I've seen them all. I get it. So I can I can do that. But I I said, but I should let you know this is a prostitution case in the Van Nuys courthouse, and I am friends with two LAPD Van Nuys Division police officers currently working this prostitution. Ring or this prostitution area, I I, I might not. I I might if I'm like, hey, it's Jason. You might have a problem. I'm not saying I'd go not go against him or not be fair, but it's you know talk about conflicts. And I thought that was pretty good. I thought uh, this is going to get me out of it. It didn't get me out of it. At least not initially. I I stayed for the longest time in that juror box. I was like juror number twelve, I think. Um and uh, not even an alternate. I was there, and the the, the defense attorney was uh, trying to get me off. The, the The prosecution was like, "Cool, that's great. You're on our team. You're on. You're sticking through." So the prosecution was not going to pull me off. The defense though kept coming back to me, but I was also being honest. Like, no, no, look, I'll be fair. I kind of like this process. I kind of see. I'll be fair. What's going on? And it took me. I was the last person excused. And then they brought someone else up, and then that was the jury. And so, if you're out there cooking up some mistake, uh, cooking up some uh, some reason, I should say, um, and and trying to trying to get out of a jury, it's tougher nowadays. It's tougher nowadays when I was that specifically involved, potentially, with this case, and they still were like, "Yeah, we might use you. So when I got excused, I walked back down, you got to go get a stamp or something, I don't know, you get a sign out or park in Forget what I was doing. I head back over there, turn on my jury slip. They're like, great, you're done for the year. And I said, that was kind of fun. Got anything for me tomorrow? And I kind of was serious. And the lady working the counter was like, you can't, you're not serious. I was like, no, it's kind of fun. Like... You got anything else? She said, "Ah, no, you're good. You're good." And she just looked at me like I was, like I was on the the most <laughs> high powered drugs available to me at the time. But she was, uh, she was like, "But thank you. Come back next year." And I, I didn't. I didn't. I haven't. I've been called in a while. I'm sure I'll get called tomorrow. So Matthew, I want to hear maybe in a follow up call, jury service in Canada, the differences. But good call.
0: Hello, Ken. It's Ulrich, calling all the way from Belgium in Norway, and I just want to know if you could attend any music concert or festival through the times, which one would you want to attend? And you know, if you can't come up with an answer, you could just make something up. I don't know, really would care.
1: Oh, calling in. he has become a regular around these parts, and I adore his questions. He's always got some little fun statement at the end, so uh, he wants me to potentially make this up, but it's a great question about music. I love my rock music. I don't talk about it as much as I want to, as much as I used to, but it's still big, big for me, and he's asking about concerts. What famous concert would I like to go to if I could travel back in time? And I have two answers without hesitation. The first, let's fire up the time machine and head back. Well, I was alive then. I actually was working in the radio industry then. And it is uh, in August of 1996. Head to Nebworth Park over there in the UK. Over there in Hertfordshire. Is that how you say it? Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire. I don't know. Nebworth. That's all I need to know. It's Oasis at Nebworth. That is one of the ones I would love to see. Now I don't like going to supersized like festival concerts and shows. The amount of people can become crushing. A little bit of uh, claustrophobia kicks in. And Nebworth, Nebworth. Well, that. That had a lot of people in it. Uh, that was uh, that was uh, a pretty sizable attended concert. And it is the focus of the uh, documentary Supersonic, which I highly recommend. I got to see, got to drink a gin and tonic over there. Uh, and um, the Arclight Hollywood watched this documentary on uh, the band in general. But it, it kind of ends with them at Nebworth. And and a lot of people argue I'm a big Oasis fan that that was kind of the peak of uh, Peak Oasis. It was the peak of the peak. And after that, it was always a little different, even though I love a lot of their music after. Uh, Be uh, Be Here Now came out in 1997, kind of changed um, um, uh, people's perception of the band. It wasn't a, as well-received album uh, as the first two. And Nebworth, though, they played over, what, a course of two days in front of 250,000 uh, people. People could have been more. It's hard to count, and it was. Uh, it's quite, quite a, a feat, quite a show. It's them at their full power, at their might. And as an Oasis fan, an Oasis fan like myself, who has seen the band many times, has seen them in concert a lot. Um, to see them at that level and that in front of that many people, just to be part of that—that would be something I absolutely would want to see. The other one, the other concert, it's uh, not a straight-ahead concert, but it's a performance and that counts as a concert. The set lasted 42 minutes. I like to hop in my time machine. I'd grab Scott Mance and Jason Inman and John Roca and all the other Beatles fans I know, and I'd head to the Apple Records Studios' 3 Saville Row, and I would be there on January 30th, 1969, watching. Uh, whether it was from the rooftop, I'd love to be up there, or it was down there on the street. I'd love to see the Beatles perform on the rooftop. Perform some of their songs from uh, Let It Be. This is supposed to be for the documentary Let It Be. Uh, songs from, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the um, you know, you got Get Back and you have uh, uh, Don't Let Me Down, I've Got a Feeling, One After 909, Dig a Pony, all those kind of things. That is uh, that is some of my favorite um, Beatle music. I am a, a giant Beatle fan. I love everything they do, but I love the later era Beatles, 68, 69, into April 1970 when they finally broke up, April 10th, 1970. So to see them at this point, even though I know it's kind of the beginning of the end, and maybe the end had already happened at this time, just to be there to hear them say those things that they say. Thanks, Mo. Like to thank like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. I would love to be there for that. It was cold, oh it's too cold. Almost couldn't hit the chords. Ringo's pounding the drum skins with his bright red nose. Maybe that wasn't the weather, I don't know. Uh George's bundled up. Paul's got the beard. Lennon's got the coat the fur coat on. That is classic, classic rock and roll playing the rooftop. Others have done it since. Others have tried to capture it on video. YouTube 2 did it very well uh, for their video, uh, Streets of No Name, uh, back in 1987. The video actually shut down downtown L.A. Um, uh, but that is uh, an homage, and an ode to the people that went there before, and that is my fab for the Beatles. So, O'Rourke, that's a great question. I have those answers right away, tucked into my brain. Let's go to Nebworth, and let's go on top of the Apple Records roof. What else we got?
0: Hey, Ken, it's Kai checking in. What do you think about the new Indiana Jones 5 movie? Do you think we need this movie? Do you want to see this movie? Do you want to see this story continue on? And the last part of that is what's your pitch for the story of Indiana Jones 5?
1: All right, Kai, I'll dance. I'll talk Indiana Jones 5. It looks like we are getting this fifth indie movie. This is going to happen. Been talked about for a while. Been rumored for a while. People have fought against it for a while. People have wanted it for a while. So where do I come down on it? Indiana Jones actually is my favorite on-screen character. And I say that even though Star Wars is uh, above it in in a way. But those Indiana Jones movies are very special to me. I, I quite enjoy them, particularly Raiders of the Lost Ark and the last crusade temple of doom is good it's good just uh didn't didn't catch me as well, as well as the other ones I don't know something about punching Nazis that I like a little bit better now along comes Indiana Jones four I was there in the theater I was excited this was a great moment I was all yeah I wasn't dressed up for but I was close to mentally I was dressed up as Indiana Jones, and that is the only time I've seen that movie. I have not seen it since. I intend to. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I don't even own a copy. I own a copy of the other three, of course. I don't have a copy of that. And I'm gonna sit down and watch it again. But here's the thing I didn't, I remember, hmm, I'm struggling, but I remember leaving the theater. And not having as big as a problem with it as other people did when I kind of emerged. And social media wasn't what it is now, but it was alive and well. And uh, you can pop on MySpace and blog about it. Uh, and just talking about your friends and uh, your friends of the business, going to stand-up comedy shows. And all my friends who are big Star Wars and Indiana Jones fans and all that kind of geekdom stuff. The, the reactions, i got to say, was a little surprising to me. I I liked it more than others. I think there were a lot of things that looked horrible in it, a lot of things that were over the top, even for an Indiana Jones movie, and I'm not even talking about the refrigerator. I'm talking about some of those fight scenes, the ants, the CGI, the monkeys, a lot of those things. I think on paper, this might have worked a little better than the execution, and I don't know who to blame. I know Spielberg was in charge, his baby, Harrison, was there. He signed on and looked like about halfway through. He was like, what am I doing? It was also a different time. I was su- I, I'm was i surprised if you follow Harrison's career close that, that he did that back then. Um, and then when he did, did do it and went that way, I was even more surprised when he agreed to come back to Blade Runner, come back to Star Wars, which is even... Was it was a bigger thing? The fact that he went back to some of his past things in his older age now? All right, maybe he's sensing the end, the closing of his career, and wants to get some stuff done. He's almost, you know, going to be pushing 80 by the time Indiana Jones 5 comes out. Um, that's insane. Uh, Sean Connery was, what, 64, I believe, off the top of my head, during last crusade. So uh, do I want this Movie, let me put myself under the gun here. Do I want Indiana Jones 5? Yes. Yes. Even though I did not like 4, I think I liked it a little more than other people. There were a lot of things in it. And a side note, the refrigerator thing. I actually had less of a problem with the refrigerator thing. I mean, and it's it's pretty over the top. Don't get me wrong. But in Temple of Doom, when you you know he and Short Round and Willie jump out of a plane in a in a life raft and survive, and and I you know it was cool. I have no problem with it. That should be in an Indiana Jones movie. That kind of stuff should be there. But that's pretty over the top as well. I think Raiders and and Last Crusade don't have. As much as that kind of stuff, other than, you know, some of the crazy, just what they're actually doing, chasing the grail and all those kind of things. So, I digress, but do I want 5? Do I want Indiana Jones 5? Yes, because maybe we can come back and do it right. Maybe we can get that redemption. Steven Spielberg admitted later on that the Temple of Doom wasn't his best effort. That he was in a dark place, George Lucas was in a dark place, both coming out of divorces at their at their point in their life um, you know the, the pressures of Star Wars, the pressures of being Spielberg at this time already big, and that they go into Temple of Doom, trying to recapture the Raiders of the lost dark magic, and they didn 't do a bad job, but it was not well received. I was in the theaters, a kid seeing Temple of Doom scared the heck out of me. And that uh, that's part of the reason PG thirteen was created. I'm one of the test subjects. My dad was like, I shouldn't have taken you to see that. I was freaked out by Moleron pulling the heart out of out of uh, his victim. There, not not good for a young kid to see uh, when you're not warned and you're easily scared like I am. So Spielberg felt later later he admitted this more than I think he did during the eighties. But The Last Crusade was without a doubt, we know now, was Him, particularly Spielberg, coming back to this franchise and saying, let me do right by the fans. Uh, I didn't like my last effort. I want to do this again. I want to make it right. And I love that. I love that attitude. Love that approach. Redemption is key, right? We all want a good redemption story, so... Spielberg, Ford, even if George is around to consult, whoever they want to bring in, if they want to get it right and they want to do Indiana Jones Five because they feel Four didn't do well, that Four wasn't their best effort, then I'm all for it. I'm interested in that. I'm interested to see and what they can do as far as plot. Uh, and I'm not a movie fights right now, so I, I, I'm not in my pitching mode. But I wouldn't mind. Here's one of the things. There's one of the reasons I think I like Crystal Skull a little bit more than other people is the concept of a alien like Crystal Skull was something that Lucas wanted to do. Uh, had had come up with stories about it before. Maybe on Young Young Indiana Jones I was going to work it in some way there, and in keeping in what. With what Indiana Jones is, which is a 1930s adventure serial guy, uh, and kind of keeping with kind of that pulp uh, kind of a, approach and, and the genre and theme, uh, the idea of Harrison Ford, excuse me, Indiana Jones, they're one and the same. Indiana Jones moving the story into the 1950s and dealing with Russians and dealing with aliens and dealing with Area 51 and all these kind of things. I love that. I'm all on board for that. I don't think you go back and change that at all. And I know they weren't aliens; they were these interdimensional beings or whatever it is. again, I haven't seen it since the theater, so I'm a little rusty on what it was. Yeah, it wasn't my favorite as well, but the concept of dealing with that kind of stuff I've read books on area fifty one It's really interesting. I love a good u f o sighting story. We've talked about it here on the knapsock files uh, before um so i i I could be on board with that, so or was on board with that, I should say so Move the story forward with the appropriate time. Keep it, you know, if Harrison's, if, if, if we're looking at 15, nearly, uh, you know, almost, uh, almost 15 years after this event, uh, the Crystal Skull, and that was in the 50s, take it into the 1960s. Uh, wrap it around something there. Now, what it is, is it, it does it deal with uh, hippies? I don't think so. I don't know. Do it deal with the British, in, British invasion? I don't think so. But um, you don't want it to be that cute. But uh, if you find something in that genre, more cover up stuff, You know, um, I don't want to say you may have Indiana Jones wrapped up in the Kennedy assassination, but something like that would actually work for me. Keeping Indiana Jones of the time and letting this character move with the times. That way, hey, if you want to do one more and you get into the 1970s or something, you can do that. And if Harrison's Indiana Jones at 90, um, fine, we can do it. We can move it forward. But I like that idea. So I don't want to know plot particularly, but I like kind of uh, government conspiracy cover ups, him dealing with that. Maybe it, uh, you know, he's always been aware that there's been some kind of cover-ups because he saw it happen to him with that arc, so it would make some sense if Indy would come back um, and deal with that kind of stuff so uh, Indiana Jones has had a great life, if you watch in young Indiana Jones Chronicles and time, watch the movies, he's had a full and vibrant and uh, adventurous life, so why not continue it in another decade so I'm on board with Indiana Jones 5 are you guys, are you ready to take that chance?
0: Hello Ken, this is Andy from Dallas. I'd like to talk baseball with you again and thanks to the uh Natural Hotline here, an opportunity for us to do so. Uh I want to bring up the subject of the two thousand and eighteen Hall of Fame inductees. Chipper Jones, you have Vladimir Guerrero, you have Jim Tome, and Jim Tony and um, Trevor Hoffman. Chipper Jones, obviously, the franchise of the Atlanta Braves since, what, maybe 95. You have Vlad Guerrero, the monster of a player. And then you have Jim Tome, Mr. 500. And Trevor Hoffman, maybe the second greatest closer in baseball history, thanks to your very own Mariano Rivera. Uh So if you just give us your thoughts on the 2018 uh Baseball Hall of Fame inductees
1: No, Andy, thank you. You have a good day because you're giving me a chance to talk about something that is uh, deeply ingrained in my soul, and that is baseball. But I don't talk about it much like I don't talk about rock music as much as I used to. What's wrong with me? I don't talk about things I loved as much as I used to. i got to get back. And I'm very excited for the 2018 baseball season. I'm a big baseball guy. Um, And I I chose this question from Andy in Dallas, and he had a lot more in the call um, that I uh, didn't address about Vladimir Guerrero and his career going to the Rangers. Andy's a big Rangers fan. But I wanted to talk about the 2018 Major League Baseball Hall of Fame class, which is Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, Trevor Hoffman, and Vladimir Guerrero, because talk about time passing. This is one of the Hall of Fame classes, and for the last five years or so, you've got this feeling, but this Hall of Fame class is making me feel ancient, and I don't necessarily think I am ancient, I get that, but this one's making me feel it, because oh my, I remember every one of these guys as they were starting out. They all started out in the early 90s and that was my prime big baseball era. Became a baseball fan in the mid to late 80s, but by high school my I was high school uh, I was in high school from 1990 to 1994 and that's where I could tell you every stat, every player, every name, every batting stance, everything they've ever done, everything they ever will do. That's what was when I knew it. So to see this, Jim told me I can I can remember him coming up with the Indians in the early nineties, the Cleveland uh, ball club. There, I can remember Chipper Jones as a rookie in nineteen ninety four. He got ninety three. He started to pop up, but ninety four he was going to break with the Braves, and he and he um, he hurt himself and he missed his season ninety five. Kind of the first time he popped up after the strike. Uh, Trevor Hoffman actually, he you know goes into the Hall of Fame as the as Andy said, probably the second best closer in Major League Baseball, second to my my guy, Mariano Rivera, the Yankees. But Hoffman with the San Diego Padres was dominant for so long. But I remember when he started as a Florida Marlin and actually played in the infield coming up in the minor leagues. And he was a converted infielder, becoming a pitcher. And then Vladimir Guerrero was a big Montreal Expo fan. And I love Vlad the Impaler because Vlad is – Harkin's back. He is definitely an old-school type of player. Baseball's a science. It's always been a science, but it's approached more as a math problem nowadays, even on the field and Vlad was from an era where if you threw a pitch 55 inches into the dirt and he could get to it, he'd swing, put some wood on that ball, and he'd send it out of the park, or he'd send it down the uh, right field line for a double run score and double to tie the game. That was the kind of player Vlad was, and he had a great arm. So, Andy, I love this 2018 Hall of Fame class for Major League Baseball, but, oh, my, do I feel old. When players that you grew up with rooting retire – that's one thing. When players that you remember breaking into the big leagues are retired and going up for manager jobs, as a lot of them are nowadays, a lot of the current crop of Major League Baseball managers, I remember when I was already old and they were like starting out in the big leagues. And it does something to you. There's, if you grow up a sports fan and you dream of being a sports superhero... There comes a point in time where you realize you can't do it and you won't be doing it, and you can't hit a fastball and you can't hit a curveball. Uh, that was me. Knew baseball, loved baseball, but after a while, that dream of catching for the Yankees was going to go away. So you, you, you root, you root, you root, you root for the home team or your team. And then after a while, uh, your mortality starts to really, really sink in when you're looking at these fresh-faced rookies. And you're like, I am so much older than that Major League Baseball rookie. But that's one thing. It's the uh, flip side of that. When that same rookie, when you're looking at him, you're like, I am so much older than that Major League Baseball manager. Because when you when you come up to the ranks, and nowadays managers are a little younger, they start younger. It's potential that you know mid thirties you could be managing uh, managing a baseball club. Hell, there were some uh, some great G- GMs, general managers up in the front office who began in their late twenties, not even uh, having been on a major league field. That changed over time; it became more of a business, and it's run like a business. But when I was a, a young baseball fan, the you know Earl Weavers and John McNamara's and Tommy Lasorda's and all those guys—they were ancient. They've looked at them, you got their baseball card, their manager baseball card, and you were like, this guy played in the majors? When like 1902? Like I don't this is an old dude running a ball club. Uh you know, Whitey Herzog, he had his he had his laptop but it was gray, you know? And so now that's that's changed. And so Andy, this is a great question. I love talking baseball, but uh this one really is like holding the mirror up to me and I see all the gray in my beard. When these guys get into the Hall of Fame, it'll be a reminder that I didn't make the Hall of Fame and I'm one step closer to the grave. (laughs) All right. Maybe not that much. Maybe not that dark, but it will feel like it. So congratulations to the 2018 Major League Baseball Hall of Fame class.
0: Hey, Ken. It's Thomas. Uh, My question for today is where is the line in regards to film between homage and plagiarism? Uh, Now that I'm getting into my own short films and stuff like this, I've realized how many things are borrowed. I've done some research, uh, Harlan Ellison sued James Cameron over Terminator. Uh, you know, people have borrowed from seven samurai for 70 years. Um, so I'd love to know where you think that line is. Uh, thanks for taking the call and hope you have a great day.
1: Genius borrows, talent steals. That's the gist of Sir Thomas de Tal's call. That's right. That's his name when he was calling into my daily Thrones show, which I no longer do, but, uh, Um, He's still Sir Thomas at all to me and a regular contributor here on the TNF Hotline. And uh, Thomas brings up a good question about uh, when is your homages in your own films, and your own creative projects, when does it uh, cross that line into just, well... Ch- uh, taking a chip off the block and, and make it into your own piece, piece of art? When has it become too much? When does it just become blatant stealing? When does it become too hacky? And What is the line? Because, you know, we can look at Star Wars. Everyone's making a fan film now, a fan film of what George Lucas did. But George Lucas was making a fan film of Flash Gordon serials and uh, Kurosawa films. And when is the, when is the line? And, and some people's reaction to seeing, well, that's, he's just doing a Hidden Fortress. You know, yeah, he is. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, gosh, I mentioned earlier I'm an Oasis fan. Uh, Noel Gallagher, often accused of just copying what other bands did in terms of, like, the, what did the Beatles do? I'll, I'll do something similar. I, I never agreed with that. I never agreed with that. Oscar Wilde is sometimes thought as the one that says Talon borrows genius steals, but even that's not right. And that's not conclusive enough. Uh, T.S. Eliot also has uh, a, the quote, uh, immature poets imitate, mature poets, steal bad poets deface what they take and good poets make it into something better or at least something different. Picasso also said, good, artists copy, great artists steal. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough call. I come from the world of stand-up comedy, and all the time you see comics doing other styles like other comics, capturing uh, the essence of those that they love before them, and then some people you just see them stealing, and then some people don't do it intentionally. It's just too much, and I, I think that's where you really can dig into this. I love this idea, what I'm reading here, of a bad poet's deface what they take. Then it becomes hacky. Then it becomes just a, a rip-off. Then it becomes just second generation. But a good poet makes it into something better, at least something different. I think that's something that I think uh, you could say George Lucas did. He took modern myth. He studied what Joseph Campbell uh, was putting out there, and then actually brought in Campbell to say, hey, did I do it right? And it's simple, and it's direct, and it's so simple that it sometimes seems like he just kind of took what other people were doing and put it down on paper. And I just don't think that's right. I don't think that's accurate because of what George did. He created this entire world. George R. R. Martin, in many ways, as I stare up and look at a Game of Thrones map hanging on my wall, was a fan of Tolkien, fan of those worlds, fan of sci-fi, successful sci-fi writer already at this point. Uh, and he just took a lot of what you could say are high fantasy tropes and put them in a big blender and told his own story. It's now his own thing. And I think that's the fine line. I think that's the difference. I'm um, Thinking of Tar- Tarantino, Kill Bill. A lot of his uh, work, though, has homages to other people. And he just chops it up and put it in. It's not like he goes, hey, let me take this from this, let me do that. He's just getting the essence of what is out there. I go to The Last Jedi and what Ryan Johnson did specifically in the throne room scene with Kylo Ren and Rey and Snoke at the Praetorian Guards. That is without a doubt a call back to the throne room scene in Return of the Jedi. That is very intentional. But instead of just copying that, he adds his own twist and it becomes something different. So it feels similar. It has the same uh, ingredients of success, but it's its own thing. So when you're making your own stories there, Thomas, what is it, Shakespeare? They said there's only seven stories in the world. You are going to find that uh, you look at what influenced you before. You look at the things you love, the stories you love, the movies you love, the moments you love, and you're going to do your version of it while also pushing them into your direction, into your tastes, into your perspective. Put your spin on it. I think that is what you do. That is what has been done before. Or you could just do a cover song, just a direct cover, and call it a day. I wish, I wonder if, you know, we talk about reboots and movies, reboots and remakes. What if you just call them movie covers? We're doing a cover of uh, Back to the Future. We're just, it's going to be, we're going to close our concert with it. It's a cover. I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question specifically, Thomas, but that's kind of my thoughts on it. You always want to try to do something different. But, you know, there's creative minds, you're all kind, we're all kind of thinking the same things. You know, we've all got a lot of the same influences, too, especially nowadays with pop culture being so out and up there and, and, and in your faces. You know what I mean? But it's got to remain kind of what it is. That's why I look at Lucas and George Lucas and, and, and the myth and the modern myth. It's so simple. It's so simple, but not everyone has done it. And after Star Wars A New Hope, so many people tried. Whether it's television or other movies, whether it's even the marketing of Star Wars, they tried. But only George was able to capture something new, yet having this familiar uh, hero's journey. And take it from other things, even even real life with World War II dogfights and all that kind of stuff. I think that's an example. He did. You know, one could say, you know, you could say uh, what George did was, uh, you know, the hidden fortress, but but also, you know, you going to say George Lucas stole from World War II. He was influenced by that. So you put it all in that blender, and 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 and, and, and let your heart lead the way. That's the most. Poetic artist thing I'll ever say. Let your heart guide you into your own story. But things things are things. That's something I've said before, uh, and it's been quoted on as a joke. But things are things. Uh, Star Wars has to feel like a Star Wars movie. And when you push those boundaries, you can see. Some people, you know, don't take to it. But then if it's too familiar, then like Force Awakens... Uh, I don't think, that, I think Force Force Awakens is its own thing, but, you know, without a doubt, it, it pays homage to what became came before it in Star Wars, and a lot of people are like, it, it's too familiar. And The Last Jedi is too different. So, Thomas, you just need to go out and tell your story. Let your influences flow through you. All right? Hmm. Let me know how it goes.
0: Hey, Ken. This is Joey from Kansas. Um, I had a question. Um, I've heard you discuss uh, the being kicked out of the groundlings a few times. Um, I know you have uh, some self-deprecating humor, but I just wondered if you've ever gotten over that disappointment and uh, how do you get over disappointments in your professional and personal life? Uh, Thanks for taking my question, bye.
1: Yeah, we started the show with Matthew's questions uh, about jury duty, but he said that hey, sometimes in AppSec files we get deep, we go, we go deep into the emotions, and we have serious topics, and uh, that's why I wanted to start light like, with the jury duty stuff. But let's end here with Joey's question. Joey calling in from Kansas, and his questions about. Disappointment and how do you handle personal and professional disappointment? He mentioned some things that I've talked about on the Napster files or other places before. Me coming, I moved to L.A. to to learn and uh, train in, at the groundlings and sketch comedy and improv comedy, and like so many people, thousands upon thousands of people, I didn't make it to the top of that heap. I was uh, I was uh, I was uh, asked to, to stop training there, which is uh, the way their system works. And that that marred me that that affected me deeply. it wouldn't affect me now as much as it did back in the day and it it really knocked me off track and talk about disappointment. it was just out and out depression because of this disappointment. And I've had some other ones. I've had some ones recently with uh, two things where I, I left a job I wanted so bad and, and got a creative job, and this is a job I wanted, and it it wasn't working the way I thought it would, and I felt bad about that. I felt depressed about the fact that I was disappointed in this job. So I left perhaps hastily to another job that I, I figured would was a risk, but then the risk didn't pay off, and I'm disappointed about that, though excited about the future. And we've all had personal disappointments as well. I don't have any textbook way to get out of it, Joey. I don't I don't know. I just know how I've done it wrong in the past. I know how I've dealt with my disappointments incorrectly. And that is you make it all about that one thing. You put too much there. Have your dreams, but make those dreams your goals and work towards them. I said earlier here, my dream at one point was to play catcher for the New York Yankees. Uh, a couple swings in the batting cage uh, after my fir- my first year of baseball little league I started late uh, I was actually pretty good I was also a little bit older than the other players on my team cuz I started late then when I moved up to an age appropriate team ooh I had some work to do and I got disappointed I got intimidated and I didn't put the work in Now, I'm not saying if I'd done that all the way back at age 12, 13, 14, I would have ended up playing for the New York Yankees. No, I don't mean that at all. But I went through high school very depressed and disappointed because I thought I already had to give up on my life dream, which was probably a silly dream, but a lot of kids have that dream, have silly dreams. Some of those dreams become reality, but the the dream of me being a Major League Baseball player wasn't... A realistic dream. And I wish I had understood that. I wish I had focused on what I was good at. But I dealt with that disappointment bad. Very bad. It, it burrowed inside of me. And it dominated me dominated my life, dominated my choices for a good four or five years. Then when high school ended, I had focused on creativity, focused on um, on stand-up comedy and writing, and, and then I was in radio, and I had a radio career. Then I lost my radio job one day, and and then that's disappointing, but then I was focusing on the next things, and then I put a lot of pressure on my sketch and improv career because I, my other dream in life was to be on Saturday Night Live, because a lot of kids have that dream. Um, and, and that didn't happen and, and it, the, the problem was though is it could have it could have still happened because in 2002 when I am told your time in the groundless is done you're not going to move on to some of the, the performing companies and you're not going to move on to the fortune of fame that just so naturally comes from that it doesn't um, but for a lot of people that is a big stepping stone to what my goal was which is SNL so when the disappointment hit it was like a flashback to the day I looked on the wall at uh, my, the baseball coach's window, or uh, a wall, a window of, of his classroom, he'd put the the names of the players cut from baseball tryouts for the high school team, and he'd put the names of the people that uh, come see me. We're going to go on to the next level here. You know, size you for uniforms. Uh, that disappointment I felt on that day, it was in my ninth grade year at high school, my shoulders slumped. I saw my name on the cut list, and it was like, it's all done. Fatalist attitude. Flash forward to 2002, and I get the call, hey, you're not going to move on to the performing companies here at the Groundlings, thanks, Uh, there's other things out there, though. I didn't listen to that part. I hadn't listened to that part already. I shot back to that ninth grade, Ken, and my shoulders slumped, and I realized, oh, my dreams are done. Everything I moved down here for is done. Took me a long time to get over that, Joey took me a long time to deal with the disappointment. That's why I say my failure to deal with the disappointment is the lesson here. Again, it's Yoda and The Last Jedi. That's why I love that scene so much. The Last Jedi is also about growing old uh, just as much as it is growing up, which is something Anthony Bresnikan used to describe The Last Jedi, and I agree wholeheartedly because that scene with Yoda is the truth. Failure is the best teacher. We are all going to fail. We are all going to have disappointments. Things are not going to go our way. It's Wilson Phillips that say, hold on for one more day and then things will go your way, right? The great Wilson Phillips band there. All right. Carney, Wendy, China. So I dealt with it wrong then and continued to deal with a lot of things incorrectly. Disappointment must be met head on. But part of it is I think you must allow yourself to be disappointed. You must allow yourself... To realize I was pursuing this thing, I wanted this thing, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen this way. Can I get there another way? Yes, I'm going to take that. Can I get there another way? No, this is done? Okay, let's deal with it. Then you allow yourself to feel that disappointment, you allow the depression to set in, and then you kick it right out as best you can. That's what I'm doing now. I'm disappointed I don't have a job. I'm not happy about that. But there is sunshine shining through those clouds because now I flash to the scene in Up in the Air where George Clooney is firing J.K. Simmons' character. George Clooney playing Ryan Bingham, firing J.K. Simmons' character. Big corporate, just, you know, boom, number, you're gone. I'm, I'm being brought in to fire you. J.K. Simmons freaks out. And, and Clooney, it's a powerful scene. I love the clip. I love the clip. He invokes, you know, do you know why kids worship... Uh, athletes, uh, J.K. Simmons, says, because they date models and Clooney says, no, that's why you and I worship athletes. No, it's because they follow their dreams. And he asked him at what point, what was the dollar amount? What was the promotion? I'm paraphrasing that part, but what was the thing that caused you to give up on your dreams? Simmons' character does have an answer. It's like $26,000 or something like that, some salary he first received in the 70s. And he gave up on his dream. He wanted to be a chef. He wanted to go learn how to cook. He wanted to follow that. But you get a job, you get married, you get your kids, all those kind of things, and at some point you get a dollar amount that locks you in. And that's okay, that's acceptable. We've all been there. But I love that as Simmons is losing that job, he's losing his comfort zone. He's losing his money. Clooney says, this is this is your chance, man. This is your chance to go pursue those dreams. It's a great scene. I'm paraphrasing a lot of it. Go check out that uh, the movie Up in the Air if you haven't seen it yet. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. I have not read the book it's based on, though. Don't ask me that. Maybe I will one day. So where I'm at right now is in a disappointing phase. Lost a job. A good job was keeping me secure. I moved on from a job that was keeping me secure. I moved on from a job that I thought was keeping me trapped And in many ways was because I didn't deal with other things properly in my past. So I was trapped at this job, but it was a secure job. And I turned down a dollar amount that would have kept me in that job. I would have been J.K. Simmons' character if I accepted this dollar amount. But I took a risk and I left to start a journey. But that journey is not without disappointments. And where I sit now is disappointed. But instead of my past where I would uh, slump my shoulders and figure, well, there goes my dreams, there goes everything I worked for, there goes everything I wanted. I'm digging in, and I'm going harder for things that I wanted, and I'm finding new things that I didn't know existed. That is the TNF hotline for this month. Love it. Love your call, your guys' calls. It might be something as simple as The Baseball Hall of Fame, but it gets me thinking about other things, deeper things. If you want to be a part of it, you just have to become a Patreon supporter, level three or higher, and you'll get the number here to the uh, TNF hotline. You can call in, leave a message. I collect them, edit edit them up. uh, Make your questions as clear and concise as you can uh, be, but I enjoy having a conversation with you guys. I put them up here. We answer them. It's once a month. It's fun. It's what we do. It's the TNF hotline. You can find this podcast in a lot of places, including Podomatic, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. You don't just have to listen to it on iTunes like it's 10 years ago. There's other things out there for you there. Follow me at CatNapSuck. And don't forget, I am on Twitch. If you want to see me stream some games, if you want to chat with me while I have some fun playing, let me know Follow me on Twitch, subscribe, cheer, give me bits, do all that fun stuff. It's the future, kids. We get we get to play video games, and people watch. It's a great time. Hey, that's it. Thanks for everyone who called in. We'll see you next time on the TNF Hotline.